Hello. The following podcast focuses on the Catholic Church and discusses sensitive content in relation to religion and politics. It contains discussions of abuse, sexism, homophobia and sexual assault. This series has been made in collaboration with the Blue and Yellow blog, which is part of the European Careers Association. Together, Lucrezia and Victoria present the first episode in this series, The Red Line. You are listening to the Maastricht Diplomat. I'm Victoria Alexander, and welcome to this episode of The Red Line. Today's discussion is the first in a four-part series where I, together with my brilliant friend and colleague, Lucrezia Nicosia, discuss the red line of power and authority that underpins the cases of abuse, particularly sexual abuse, in the Catholic Church. Before we begin, we find it necessary to assure all viewers that no part of these discussions should be taken as a condemnation of religious belief. Our intention is only to discuss the way that power and authority can be wielded in an abusive manner. In this podcast, our discussions of the church refer to the church not as a religion, but as an institution. We sincerely hope that you enjoy listening. So with that, let's begin. In today's episode, we begin our discussion by introducing the history and structure of the church so that we can better understand the nature of the church's authority as it pertains to church members, or the laity. Okay, Lou, so from a historical point of view, how would you describe the process of secularization of the church and the subsequent creation and distinction of the Holy See versus like the state of the Vatican City? Mm-hmm. Whenever we are discussing about the Catholic Church, it's really important to make a distinction between the Holy See and the state of Vatican City. And this requires a brief explanation of the history. So from the year 756 until 1870, the church was in control of the Pontifical States, which was a part of the territory within Italy. And the Pontifical States not only furthered the process of secularization of the church, but also placed it as one of the most powerful entities in the territory, at least in the Italian territory. However, this change with the unification of the Kingdom of Italy in 1861, where the Pontifical States were conquered by, by the Kingdom of Italy, and therefore the Holy See was left with no direct sovereignty over a territory. Again, this non-favorable situation of the church changed again in 1929 with the Lateran Pact, which was signed by Benito Mussolini on behalf of the Italian government and by Cardinal Secretary of State Pietro Gasparri on behalf of the papacy. So the Lateran Pact is made of three main documents. The most important one, at least the one that we're going to focus about now, is the third one, so the political treaty, which was made in order to solve the so-called Roman question. What is the Roman question? As I said before, after the loss of the Pontifical State, there was this conflict between the Kingdom of Italy and the Church. In particular, the question was related to, to Rome, because Rome not only was the seat of the Pope, but it was also the capital of Italy. And therefore, this dispute related to who should have the power over the city of Rome. With the Lateran Pact, we, we have a resolution of this Roman question. Indeed, Italy decided to give a part of Rome, which is now called Vatican City, and it is the state of Vatican City, under the power of the Church. 
Therefore, we can see this distinction between the holacy, which is the spiritual sovereignty of the church, and then we have the state of Vatican City, which gave again territorial sovereignty to the church after the loss of the pontifical states with the unification of the Kingdom of Italy. So this way we can have a quite clear picture on the difference between the Holy See and the state of Vatican City. And I also explained the Roman question, what it consisted and what it entailed. But I want to ask you, Victoria, we talked about Rome, the fact that Rome was the center of the dispute between the Pope and the Italian state. But why? Why Rome is so important for the church? So to answer the question of why Rome, we really have to start with the question of why Peter. So Peter was one of the most preeminent apostles. He was one of the most popular followers of Christ. This can be for a couple of reasons, namely that he was the first real leader of the Christian church. And also he was the first apostle to whom Jesus appeared after he had been crucified. And then why Rome? So Rome has particular importance to Peter because Peter began a pilgrimage from Jerusalem to Rome. And in Rome, it was where he was crucified upside down. So not only is Peter a very important apostle, but he was also crucified in Rome. But beyond just that, Rome itself was a very popular destination for religious pilgrims because it was very easily accessible to people from all over the Mediterranean world at that point. So Rome really was a natural beginning point just from a logistical point of view, but also from a religious point of view. Of course, when we're talking about the church in Rome, we also need to ask ourselves not only why was Rome so important religiously, but how the church in Rome came to gain so much religious power and authority after that point. So not just the church in Rome, but the church that became the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So in the simplest of terms, it can be easily stated that the claims to religious authority put forth by the church are largely based in this idea that there is an unbroken line of historicity from the time of Jesus' death to the present day. That the interpretations we have of Christ's teaching today are the exact same as what he actually said thousands of years ago. However, this unbroken line of historicity is, at the very least, debatable because there's this idea that the church started out as one entity that grew and grew and splintered as it grew. But that's not entirely the case when we look at it from like an archaeological standpoint, from other texts that we have. It seems like pluralism was always present in the early Christian church, just as it is today. Mm -hmm. Taking in mind the plurality of the, the early church, it became really important to distinguish what was apostolic or what, what could be taken as doctrine and what wasn't. So at that point it became necessary to decide on who was going to be the religious authority that could decide on such matters. And since the Roman Catholic Church held such a high position of power due to, you know, Peter's history there and also just the logistical ease that it posed, often these disputes were settled in Rome. And so Rome kind of in the very early days, as the very early church was starting to form in the century immediately following Christ's death, that's when we really see Rome beginning to take this authoritative position in Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, what you just explained about Rome made me think that even if the, the Catholic Church, Catholicism in general, is spread all around the world, the Church has such a strong connection with Rome. And while for the rest of the world, I mean, outside Europe at least, Catholicism is only perceived as a religion, in Europe there is such 
history behind it that it becomes even more than just a religion. It's kind of part of our own identity, our own culture. And maybe it's here that we have some problems with with the presence and the authority of the church. Yeah, because it really begins to act more as an official institution rather than just a religious authority. Yes, and also people that are not even religious, but we may recognize ourselves with the doctrine of the church, of, of Catholicism in general. Right. I think what you just said about community effects and how this relates to individual members is really getting to the heart of what we're talking about today, mm-hmm. right? And it does go back to what I was talking about before with the unbroken line of historicity. So the way that these claims of unbroken line of historicity can be used and has been used is that it really instills within believers this almost visceral reaction to dogma that may go contrary to that belief, and understandably so. But related to that, I, I would like to, to mention what the sociologist Anthony Giddens explained about our modern society, the late modernity. So he outlined the fact that there have been two major cultural shifts in our late modernity, one of them being the, the life after traditional values, also called the traditionalization. So According to him, individuals nowadays are expected to make choices and decisions in a rational and secular manner, in contrast with the individual in traditional societies, where peoples refer to traditional values, religion or customs as a means by which to make decisions and plans. However, we see uh, that now this has changed. We don't have anymore the close connection with religion. However, as I said before, even if we don't recognize ourselves as being believers, we still are closely connected to those beliefs and ideals, which are the basic beliefs from which we created our society. And therefore, whenever we find ourselves, uh, we're not able to make these rational decisions that everyone requires us to do after the end of traditional values. The religious dogma becomes important to us because we can we can see in it some kind of point of reference. And actually, this is what politicians pressure on. And this is the phenomenon that everyone knows as populism. So we're facing difficult problems right now with like immigration or the LGBTQ community or armed conflict. Politicians often use the sense of instability that the people feel to promise quick exemplary and decisive actions against these complex matters. And therefore, we can see that actually sometimes the religious dogma is not merely reinforced by religious authority, but nowadays the abstraction of the Catholic Church is perhaps more an alibi by politicians rather than a decisive obstacle against certain legislations. Right, because at that point, these beliefs become self-perpetuating. And when they become self-perpetuating, the church or any institution in which you believe begins to no longer need to assert its own authority. You can do that for them, or the other institutions that are affected or nearby can do that for them. This is particularly the case because these easy answers really reinforce the religious certainty that we feel whenever we go to church and hear these teachings reinforced to us. And so... It's the cyclical effect of religious dogma. It builds on and reinforces itself. And sometimes the effects of this can be systemic almost, where you have things, for example, the extremely literal language in the Bible can be taken as fact. 
that this is how things should be because this is what the Bible says and we feel so certain in this fact. And not only just that the Bible says this, but also that we don't even question it at that point. Is this actually what it says? Or is this something that's being told to us by someone whose authority we trust? Yeah. Another layer of it is, again, the question of historicity. Even if the authority in whom we trust is interpreting the Bible correctly according to that language and that version of the Bible and is a true believer and is acting truly in good faith, we have to keep in mind that we do not have the original copies of these documents and that these documents are thousands of years old that have been copied and lost and copied and translated and edited and copied and lost hundreds of times before they get to us. And there are, there are countless of examples of this in English, for example. And so we have to be really careful that we do not allow our religious certainty to gain institutional power within the community. You know, I think this this is also a consequence of what happened in the history, because as we saw before, we had all this process of secularization of the church. So what we have now, it's kind of a consequence of what happened before. So we're not able anymore to distinguish religion and our normal life and habits and attitude towards life. And therefore, yeah, we, we saw during history uh, at some point you couldn't even distinguish uh, between the state and religion and the church like for example you could see the holy roman empire which was together an empire and the church and therefore we as i said we see some kind of authority in those texts and in particular whenever we're dealing with difficult issues we tend to find an answer to something that is written down, is stable, is sure, and it's clear. Yeah, exactly. As somebody who grew up religious and who does believe that organized religion could hold a place in society, I figured it would be important to also talk about some of my own experience with some of these phenomena that I experienced in the church. So to begin, a little bit of background that might be important for this. My mother is a doctor, she's very hardworking, she's amazing. And my dad is also amazing and very hardworking, but he stays home. So I went to this church when I was an early teen and uh, we were pretty new to this church. We were new to the area we just moved and we were still trying out churches and we found this one that we really liked. But we found out a little bit later that the uh, religious leaders in this church really took issue with the fact that my mom was the main breadwinner, the woman, and my dad stayed home with me. And it got to be so bad that eventually we just left. I mean, I believe, I can't remember exactly because it was so long ago, but I believe that there was one time that like the religious leaders came and sat down with my parents and talked to them about it. And the, the wife came and talked to my mom about it as well. And I think that the really ironic thing is that a lot of people will say that the Bible doesn't actually reinforce these harmful beliefs because a lot of times they'll point to Proverbs 31, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's a very long passage in Proverbs that talks about the, the godly woman. And she's buying land and selling land and she's making decisions and she's an active member of society. And that's true. It's a beautiful passage and I enjoy reading it as a feminist. But um, I also think that it's interesting in that church that there was a whole women's group that got together and were analyzing Proverbs 31 at the same time that the religious leaders of this church were taking issue with my mom acting as a Proverbs 31 woman. On top of some of these things, we also have, we have some French groups that blame women for the fall of man based on the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. And, you know, just 
we need to we need to point out that a lot of these beliefs can have a really negative and real life effect on women and men. Women are devalued and men feel it is their place and their role in life and in the family to provide for their family. And if they're not satisfied in that role or if they can't fulfill that role, then they get upset. They they feel like they're less of a man. And then of course because of these gender roles, men are not allowed to express their emotions. You can see that sometimes these difficult circumstances perpetuated by the beliefs reinforced by the church blow up in these grand finales of suicide and domestic violence. But you know what the problem is? That a lot of times the Bible is interpreted as a law and is treated as such. But the point is that it does not allow for any progression of our society. And therefore, if we try to solve current problems according to what is written in the Bible, we're not going to have any progression. Like take, for example, feminism, as you were saying, or the LGBTQ community, or all the, the culture of toxic masculinity. Um, no, that's, that's absolutely true, because a lot of the Bible really was written to be law. That's actually where the distinction between natural law and positive law comes to life, because we have According to a philosopher, Thomas Hobbes, he said that natural law is essential only before the creation of the state of reason. However, whenever we have the state settled, which like can be any kind of state that we have right now around the world, we set aside natural law and we have the formation of positive law. Why? Because positive law enables for changes. So we have amendments to the law. We have new laws passing because they go in conformity with the society that changes over time. And that's really important. That's why we, we really have to pay attention to make a distinction between the text, the Bible, which is related to our religion. And then we have legislation, which is related to the state and how we live our normal lives, where there are not only religious people, but there are also the non-religious people. And we have to bring together different cultures, different opinions, and as I said, an evolving society. Yeah, I think that that's a, a big issue a lot of times with these very, very literal and legalistic interpretations of the Bible is that we completely forget and ignore the cultural context in which this was written. The thing that we need to understand with this is, like you said, the, the culture evolves and so does the law. Natural law, positive law, they are not static. They are not only true in one form. It does matter the circumstances in which things occur, right? But whenever we have a series of beliefs in which we are so certain, we don't allow for that possibility, like you said. And that's where a lot of this stems from, I think. So, for example, there are two things that come to mind here. We have the book of Job and we have Revelation. One is Old Testament, one is New. And, for example, Revelation is interpreted today to be a literal prophecy of the apocalypse. But, realistically, it was most likely written as a response to and a criticism of Christian persecution in Rome committed by the Emperor Domitian. He was the Antichrist. Right? And you, you see a lot of this symbolism does line up with back then because we're talking about texts that were written thousands of years ago when the ideas that they had of preserving history and writing down their history it was very different back then. They had different objectives. And the Bible has a completely different context. 
If we look at, for example, the book of Job, you had a very rich man with lands, children, livestock, all of this stuff. Very rich man. And this story, the way that it's set up, is that you have up in the clouds, there's God and Satan comes to God. And God says, hey, look at Job. He's my most faithful servant. He's amazing. I love him. And Satan says, he's only worshiping you because you give him nice things. Like if you were to take all of this away, I'm sure he wouldn't worship you anymore. And so God says, okay, let's try this. So effectively what ends up happening is that all of Job's fields and livestock and children, everyone dies. And... This happens consistently through a series of phases, and all throughout all of these phases, Job continues to worship God. Even when Job's friends come and say, hey, Job, what have you done to deserve this? Clearly you've done something to anger God. Why are you still worshiping him? And Job, in all of this adversity, continues to worship God. So the reason that I'm talking about this is that it could be interpreted slightly differently if we look at the language used. So Satan was not necessarily in these early, early years, used to refer to some supernatural entity of chaos like we know it today. The word Satan really means just the adversary. And if we look at that in legal terms, it's, it, it effectively means the prosecutor. So the way that this can be interpreted is a parable that talks about a prosecution in heaven, a courtroom, if you will, where Job is being put on trial. It's a parable to tell people you should continue to worship God even when things are rough. But as it's taken today, a lot of times this can be used as real belief that Job was a real person to whom all of this happened. And that's just simply not likely. <laughs> However you look at it, you have to consider either religion or legislation as something that changes, like you have to interpret it according to the circumstances. However, this is something that shall be done for what concerns religion, but at the same time sounds impossible because why religions are made? Right. To answer questions that we're not able to answer. There is uh, a conflict between the, the world of religion, religions in general, and then we have the secular world. So in the secular world, we recognize that we're not able to answer important questions. And that's why, for example, we have democracy. So we have different people that talk to each other and try to find not the right solution, but the best solution possible. Right. Well, for religion, it doesn't work like that. You have a solution that's right in front of your face. Yeah. You cannot interpret it, even if actually you interpret it, because the Bible can be interpreted. But at the same time, if they allow to make changes, it really sounds like they have to uh, compromise all the, the foundations of this religion. And this is something they can't do. And that's why it's the, the only solution possible to, to make these two words co-live together. It's to distinguish the two. So yeah. to not make religion cover right. the secular word at the opposite. Right. Well, what you said is exactly right about how any contradiction would undermine authority, right? That's exactly the point. Mm -hmm. Because that really summarizes everything so nicely. It goes back to what we were talking at the very beginning of the episode about that unbroken line of historicity. If this is challenged, whether or not it's true, the church views any challenge to that line of historicity as a de facto threat to its authority. And so you can't challenge dogma, you can't challenge history, you can't challenge these things or ask questions, because if you do, it undermines the authority that the church as an institution has. So with that, we wrap up our first episode of 
this series, The Red Line. We're going to come back with another episode. We're going to talk again and more about the role of the Catholic Church. Therefore, please don't miss our next episodes. And make sure to check out Lucrezia's wonderful articles up now on the Blue and Yellow blog from the ECA. Oi, oi! This episode was written and hosted by Victoria and Lucrezia. The music was by Stone Ocean and the executive producer was Rue. This podcast was brought to you by the students of the UNU Merit, the United Nations University here in Maastricht. Thank you to the Blue and Yellow for collaborating on this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify and Apple Music. You've been listening to the Maastricht Diplomat.